Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tell Me About Podcast, where each week, two nerdy friends deep dive random topics. I'm Laura. And I'm Tom. And this is episode number five. So before we dive in this week, we wanted to thank everyone for letting us take a break last week for the Labor Day holiday. I was able to get some much needed time off from work and spend time with my family at the beach, and it was awesome. We had great weather, so we really appreciate that. And we also want to thank all of our listeners. We are so excited that you're here with us, and it means so much to us, and we can slowly see our audience steadily growing. So that's really, really exciting for us. Um, So please remember to rate, review, subscribe, tell your family and friends about us so we can reach more people. And for the one listener we have in Canada, I see you. I think we have two now. I think we have two listeners in Canada. We have two. We have two. Thank you. I have two of my fellow country people in in, in listening to, to this podcast. We see you. We love you. To the person listening in Taiwan, we see you and we love you too. But we want to thank everybody for sticking with us through the first couple of weeks. As we kind of learn and grow this this thing, we are so appreciative of you and we are thankful that you're on this journey with us. And with that, we know we've done uh, a lot of kind of darker or heavier uh, topics to start. We you certainly know, have, had, yeah. We've had... We've had Try to have some fun with them, but we have done a lot of heavier topics. So we wanted to do something uh, kind of fun and kind of light uh, this week. As we record this in mid-September, the the actor strike and the writer strike is has doesn't seem to be coming to an end anytime soon, and maybe that'll be its own episode. But uh, for right now, uh, we do want to talk about a, a pretty famous writer showrunner director um and odds are if you've watched a sitcom in the last 20 30 years you've watched something that he has his fingerprints on today we're going to be talking about the career of greg daniels and you may not know the name but you definitely know some of his work the office parks and rec Simpsons, King of the Hill. He has a legendary career and he has written some of really some of the greatest or had a hand in in writing and and running some of the greatest shows uh, in modern television history, if not all of television history. And so we kind of want to talk about him today and and use it as a as a gateway to talk about to a couple of shows that we are both really passionate about. So just a little bit of background on on Greg. He is born in New York in 1963. His mom was worked for the New York Public Library System. His dad was a radio executive. Really? I didn't know that. He was a, his dad was a radio executive, I believe, for ABC Radio. And in fact, Greg tells a story that the first joke he ever wrote, and this is gonna be a really dated reference, you know, if there's anyone basically over the age of 45, you'll probably get this. But the first joke he ever wrote was a Karnak the Magnificent joke. Karnak was a Johnny Carson character. Johnny Carson, you had the long run of The Tonight Show. The heyday of it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s. My dad and, was a was a big, big fan of Johnny Carson. So, and, yeah. you know, one of the one of his characters, he had a couple of very famous characters. One was when he would be Mr. Rogers, probably his best, most well-known character. Uh, when he, when he would be Karnak the Magnificent, he he would wear the the hat, and you know, which like a lot of comedy, and I'll just tell you this right now, like a lot of comedy, it hasn't aged well. No, um, you know, when you see a, a white man wearing a turban, it, it just it it's not something that would happen today nor should it probably uh but you have to remember this is 19 this is the 1970s 1980s and he would have the the headdress and he would put the letter up to his head and would say the the catch would say the the punchline and that was the first joke he wrote he was very much influenced by monty python as it turned out and the joke that he wrote for his dad was actually snuck into the office years later it was one of the jokes that Steve Carell says in the Dundies, in the Chilies. He hones his talent. He goes to Harvard University. He writes for the famous Lampoon at Harvard, which is basically at the 
you know, if you're going to, to Harvard, it's the pinnacle of comedy writing. There he meets Conan O'Brien. And he begins a relationship with Conan O'Brien. Um, after he... Are they, they the same with, age? I guess they I guess they are. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I would think they are. Probably. Yeah. I get, so, yeah, I guess it makes sense. I I always think Conan is younger than he is, but he's getting up there. Well, it's the hair. Yeah, it's, true. It's the hair. You know, the the, the 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 red hair has not faded really at all. But he honed his writing skills at Harvard. He gets a job at an HBO sh- uh, show that doesn't last very long. But after that, he latches on Saturday Night Live. And back in the day, writing for Saturday Night Live was the pinnacle. And if you listen to everyone from, you know, Chris Farley to to Phil Hartman to so many for so many comedians, the goal was to get on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and, and he's writing for Saturday Night Live and kind of the glory, what's considered the glory age of, of Saturday Night Live in the mid to late 80s when the show had really bounced back um, or was beginning to bounce back from from what was almost at death's door so to speak. And he's writes there for three years. He takes a couple of freelance jobs. One of his freelance jobs is actually writing for Seinfeld. He writes a Seinfeld episode freelance for Larry David. Were they at Saturday Night Live together? They might've been. Yeah. Cause they, Larry David spent at least a year there. If I remember. They might've they, yeah. they, they might been cause mm-hmm. like late eighties, early nineties, they might've been. Yeah. So, he writes the episode and one of the themes that you see, if you've seen enough Greg Daniels shows, there's three kind of overarching themes that he really emphasizes in, in his, and he talks about this a lot. If you, you know, there's a great interview uh, with the Academy, with the television Academy uh, and science uh, television, science Academy. That's almost three and a half hours. One of the, things that you'll see a lot if you've ever watched one of his shows either uh, episodes that he's written or episodes or shows that he's ran as the showrunner or the creator there are three things you'll see a lot of realism depth and emotion mm-hmm. and that really is kind of the overarching. if he had if you had to kind of define him and define the way that he creates and writes those are really the characteristics, and you see that a lot. When you first see the realism is in this Seinfeld episode he writes. It's one of the better episodes of the first couple of seasons. It's season three. It's the parking spot. Mm. And a lot of the stories and a lot of the things that inspire him are situations, people he pulls from real life. So he tells the story that when... His dad was in New York as a television executive. They had a car and every couple of days he'd have to move the car. There was this thing in New York at the time called alternate side. And basically for an hour, two to three times a week, you had to go move the car so they could, they could sweep the streets. And it was a whole, it, it's, if you're from New York, you understand what it is. And if you have a car, because basically for that hour, it's in your neighborhood or your block. It's Mad Max. It's Thunderdome. You have people basically just pacing, double, triple parking, waiting for the hour to be up so they can run and get their spots back. And Sounds like a nightmare. It is a nightmare. But he tells the story that his dad was circling around for a spot. And he finds a spot. And as he's pulling into a spot, another person uh, backing into a spot, another person is pulling in frontwards into a spot. And so they basically have this standoff in the middle where half of the half of his, his dad's car is backed in and the other half of the other person's car is pulled in. And basically they're arguing about who gets the spot. And he turned. What do you What do you think in that situation? Do you think it's the person backing in or pulling in from from uh, the front? I've never had it happen, so I. (laughs) To me, okay. To me, though, I I side with the guy backing in because if you're parallel parking, 
95% of the time you got to back in unless you got that much space, which is super rare that you have that much space to pull in frontwards. So well, I and if, think and if you're pulling in, if you have that much space to pull in, there should be enough room for two cars. True. Yeah, exactly. So I, I vote the guy backing in has the spot, but that's just my opinion. Tell us what you guys think. He basically turns this into an episode and you know, he, as the story goes, he tells a, a friend to tell uh, Greg Daniels, mom that he's basically in the standoff and he needs to bring, bring food because they're not budging. No one's budging an inch. Now, obviously the story is, is somewhat dramatized, you know, in, in the episode, George is the George Costanza is the person who's backing in. Uh, one of Kramer's friends is the driver that's pulling in. They're supposed to be meeting it uh, up at Jerry Seinfeld's apartment for, to watch a fight. And basically what ensues is like seven hours where everyone who walks by gets into an argument over, <laughs> over who, who has the spot and they're, and they're hockeying each other. And, and they end up basically that the story ends is that they end up missing the fight because everyone's downstairs arguing, arguing about who gets the parking spot. But it's the example of the type of real story that he tends to pull from a lot in his writing. And you see that a lot. A big theme of his is realism. Big, big theme of his. So <laughs> after he writes the episode for Seinfeld, which he wanted to do because, as he says, he just wanted to write for Larry David because he idolized Larry David. And he wanted to pick the brains of Larry and, and Jerry. So he does a couple more freelance jobs and he ends up getting a job as a writer on The Simpsons. And this is in season three, season four, as the original writers are leaving and a new set, he's part of a new set of writers that are coming in. Ironically, one of the writers he's replacing is Conan O'Brien. Conan really? O'Brien was one of the, Conan O'Brien was one of the original writers for the Simpsons. No way. He left to take the late night job to become the host of, of late night that, David Letterman had had hosted when and then left to go be the host of the late show with David Letterman on CBS. He joins the Simpsons at a time where he feels the Simpsons are kind of losing their mojo. You know, the Simpsons had really caught on very quickly in its first couple of seasons. And he thought by the time that he had joined that the show was kind of on the back stretch. Now, little did he know that he joins at almost at a peak and he's on the writing staff for some of really the, the golden age of the show. And when a lot of fans talk about the golden age of the Simpsons, it's season four, season five, season six, season seven, where he's a writer on the show and he writes some of the more well-known episodes Real, probably his best known episode is a episode 22 short stories about Springfield, which is a take on the 22 short stories about Glenn Gould. And it has all these different little vignettes. The famous one is, is principal Skinner with the steam tams and the Aurora, Aurora Borealis in his kitchen. But there are a lot of other little vignettes that are in that show, uh, in that episode. He writes another episode in season six, uh, that, you know, again, considering the time of comedy, it does not age well. The One of the episodes he writes is an episode called Homer Badman. And it's an episode where Homer is accused of sexually harassing a babysitter. I when remember actual, that one, yeah. When, he actually, when in actuality, he pulled a gummy Venus de Milo off her butt. And you'll see it later on, in, and we'll talk about later on in a couple minutes. He, that's kind of another kind of real, it, it's, it's cartoony, but it's kind of, it, there's a realism to it. It also, again, for an episode that does not age well, just because of the subject matter, it has one of my favorite skits and jokes of all time in any show. And that is the talk show, Gentle Ben, which is just a bear with a microphone hat leaping around Going up to people, and uh, I think the joke was, let's have less Homer Simpsons and more money for schools. Then bed goes over, tries to eat food. The bed handler goes, bed no. 
and then the bed patrol shoots the bear with with tranquilizers. <laughs> and as he's falling into the crowd, it goes to a still shot of Ben just holding, you know, with just the pensive talk show host. One of my favorite gags of all time. One of my favorite visual gags of all time are just the shirts that say Ben Patrol. So he writes another couple of episodes. He writes a, a bunch of episodes for The Simpsons over the next few years. Another one of his favorites uh, is Homer and Apu. And in this episode, Homer accidentally gets Apu, who is who owned, runs the Quickie Mart, uh, fired because he's selling rancid meat. And he finds this out because he acts, he wears a giant foam cowboy hat with a camera in it <laughs> that catches it. Um, but he writes this episode and Apu is a character. We talked about how comedy doesn't age well. So Apu in the Simpsons lore is a, is a character that does not age well because it's a Middle Eastern character with played by a white guy voiced by a white guy and he's Hank Azaria and he you know he's kind of playing up almost the minstrel accent and there's a great documentary uh, from another great comedian uh, Hari Kondabalu called The Problem with Apu and he, and he talks to a lot of South Asian you know comedians actors Cal Penn's one of them from Harold and Kumar and, and among other things where they talk about how they love the Simpsons, but they don't like the character. And Hank Azaria basically has this come to Jesus where he says he won't do the, the, the voice anymore a couple of years ago. And the Simpsons actually retired the character. I remember I did watch that documentary. It's fantastic. So if you guys get a chance to watch it, highly recommend that. It's, it's really good. And it's, again, it's really showing how comedy at its best can be or should be kind of self-introspective and self-evaluatory uh, and really should be making sure your jokes are attacking the right people, making sure you're not punching down at people who are marginalized. When you hear comedians now talk about quote-unquote cancel culture, it's how many times do you see it's the old guard who just, they're angry because they can't make fart jokes or they're angry because they can't make, you know, jokes about fat people, you know, or, or the LGBTQ community community. The whole point of comedy is not to make fun of sensitive groups. The whole point of comedy is to, you know, kind of speak almost truth to power. And you're, you're supposed to be punching up, not punching down. And you see that a lot. And he writes another, one of the really well done episodes that he writes is another one in season five, Lisa's wedding. And it's a flash forward episode where Lisa, who's the, the Simpsons daughter is in college. She gets married to a British guy or she gets engaged to a British guy and the wedding gets called off because the British, uh, her fiance doesn't like her family and refuses to wear pig conflicts that Homer gives him. And then there's obviously there's calamities and things like that. And it's supposed to be set in 2010, which is wild. When you think about it now, there were flying cars and holograms of trees and big Ben had a digital time, Timex watch <laughs> as his face. Just so many sight gags in that show. It's fun. I love it so much, but he talks about how at the end of that, episode there's a, an emotional fade in where the the tent where the wedding is supposed to be held fades into the tent where she is in the present day and that it's the blend back so that's how they they get out of the of the flash forward sequence and there's he talks about how there's a sadness there and he appreciate that's what he kind of aimed for that's another thing he kind of he looks for a lot is emotion emotional depth and you see that with a lot of his you don't really see it as much with the simpsons because by the time he gets on the show it's the beginning of se it's season three season four and a lot of those characters are already well defined mm -hmm. but 
you'll see it more when you get to King of the Hill and we, especially when you get to the offense, the depth of the characters is incredible. A lot deeper than you would think a 30 minute sitcom would be. And so he writes for the Simpsons for a couple of years. He has to, and then he is at this point, mid to late nineties, I think around 97, he has a deal with Fox to develop two shows. One is a show that was kind of, not necessarily a married with children spinoff, but kind of in the same kind of vein. And it was, I think the, the producers or the directors of, of married with children were involved with this project. That doesn't go anywhere, but that ever, did that ever air? Even like I don't think it even made, I don't even think it made it past the pilot stage. Gotcha. Okay. Um, by the way, too, his wife ends up being the head of the WB and developed, among other things, Dawson's Creek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The other show that he's scheduled to work with is the show that would become King of the Hill. With and He's working with Mike Judge. And Mike Judge, right now, at this point in the mid to late 90s, is extremely popular. This is the guy who created Beavis and Butthead. He, they write this show that's kind of in the same kind of Beavis. and it, the, the animation is kind of similar if you ever watch the show. It is very similar. Now that you say that, it is very similar to each other. And I didn't even know this. The animation's watercolor. Really? So, and that's when you, if you go and watch this interview, the animation's watercolor because it made it look very real, made it look uh, realer. The characters are people that Mike Judge kind of came across when he was living in Texas. Uh, in fact, kind of the, the genesis for Hank and Dale and Bill and Boomhauer are these or neighbors he had in Texas that had adjoining lawns with these, with connecting fences. And they would all kind of come and just basically critique each other's home repairs. When Greg Daniels comes on board for the show, another thing you're going to see Greg Daniels do is he does a tremendous amount of research and a tremendous amount of emotional investment in the show. He does a lot of research into Texas and he goes down there and he has his writers go down there. He adds a lot of characters to the show. He adds, for example, he adds Cotton, Hank's dad, who is a foul-mouthed, angry, bitter, misogynist, kind of racist uh, war hero who had his shins blown off by the Japanese in World War II. They also write it later in the show that he has an affair with a Japanese woman and to which he ha she has a child that turned out to be the Japanese Hank. And... The he writes the character of Luann, who is the uh, the niece of Hank's wife Peggy, who is voiced by the the late great Brittany Murphy, who was she was phenomenal. Loved uh, Brittany Murphy in that role. Her husband eventually in the show is the late great Tom Petty of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and his character is a character named Lucky, who is self proclaimed rich by winning a $53,000 settlement because he slipped on PP at the Walmart. Those are kind of wild examples, but you start to see the type of depth he gives these characters. So one thing they talk about a lot in the first couple of years of the show is how they try to be centrist and they try to be right down the middle. They don't want to be Republican or they don't want to be Democrat. They want to be independent because that's what Texas likes to portray itself as. You know, he talks about how the antagonists of certain episodes are kind of these skinny coastal elite liberals um, that want to do certain things. There's an episode way, way off in the, one of the last seasons where, you know, these guys from New York fly in and want to ban trans fats. Then you also have the antagonists of the show that are the, you know, stereotypical beer-swelling rednecks who don't like anything that, you know, threatens the Republican conservative way of life. So he tried to really make put it right down the middle, and that was really kind of the basis. And he talks a lot about how also, too, he doesn't want to he didn't want it to be the Simpsons. He wanted it to be something completely different with every one of his shows. You're going to see that he wants it to be something completely different. 
he brings writers over and he brings support people over from his other shows but the cast are all, almost always completely different but what ends up happening is he creates this show that is incredibly thoughtful uh while also being very realistically humored and he has these characters that are incredibly funny and also incredibly deep and complex so you have the main character hank who is this straight-laced uh smart really the the sensible brains of his family and his immediate friend circle who has to be the one that kind of has to be the common sense thinker for everyone his wife is a person with kind of an inflated sense of self who thinks she can speak spanish when she can't there's a very funny scene in an episode where she goes takes his class trip to mexico and accidentally kidnaps a mexican girl thinking it's one of one of her students and she has to defend herself in mexican court by in uh by trying to speak spanish and once they realize that she does not speak a word of spanish only in her own mind um they let her go but you know then he has a son who's not a typical all-american son he's a son that's not really into sports he's into theater and comedy and you know music and things like that and pop culture you know his friends are a conspiracy theorist who who thinks the kennedy who believes the kennedy assassination was all a hoax a army barber with mental health issues um and abandonment issues and a guy who mumbles and is a himbo a literal promiscuous himbo and then again it's the whole world of depth and characters around that that kind of becomes a hallmark of his and so he works on that show for about five six seasons he comes back and he does a little and he does a little bit more like season six season seven but by season eight he's gone and by that point he had joined up to start the office and the way he tells it is he was given a tape by his agent and he watched it on a whim and basically within before he knew it he had watched the entire first season of the british office and that's how he got hooked on the british office he goes to meet with ricky gervais and stephen merchant about the american version of the office again and I cannot stress this enough. The British version of The Office has not aged well in some respects. Ricky Gervais himself has not aged well. He is all very much one of those, I'm going to try to offend everybody. And if you try to tell me I shouldn't do that, then you're part of the cancel culture trying to cancel me Yeah, uh, type of comedian. And it's, it's a shame because it really dampens a lot of what he accomplished because mm -hmm. he sounds less like a comedian trying to challenge the status quo and more like a rich old guy who is just bitching and moaning that he can't say whatever he wants anymore have you ever seen the um the british version of the office so i have not seen the british version of the office i did see i guess it was and this hasn't aged well either but I guess Saturday Night Live, when I think Ricky Gervais was hosting, did a, kind of a take on that where he claims that the British version was actually taken from the Japanese version of The Office. <laughs> There's a Japanese version of The Office? Well, in, in the skit there is. That, that's oh, the, okay, in, okay. The and, and Steve Carell is the boss there too, and it's, and it's Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader is, and, um, you know, they're doing the, they, and the first scene is the, the infamous uh, stapler in the uh, in the Jello. Kristen Wiig is the secretary, and she laughs. She does the Pam giggle, and every time they every time they talk to each other, they bow. And it's it's something that is has an age well. You know, it, it's 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 cultural. <laughs> to say it's cult cultural appropriation is putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. But I. To, to that point, I have not seen the original British Office. 
Neither have I. I've I've seen clips of it, but to me, it just comes off very dry. And I know I know British humor isn't necessarily my thing, and I don't always get it. Um, but I, you know, in my opinion, I always like the American version better. I think I think it's funnier. Some British humor I like, so it it, it kind of depends on the British humor. But I've never seen the original British version of The Office. But when the office is getting ready to air the original Brit the American version of the office is getting ready to air and NBC buys it. And he also talks about how he wasn't sure NBC was going to, or a network was going to buy it. He thought it was, he thought it was going to end up on cable. Did he shop around a couple networks for that? Or am I, you know, not- I, he said that he said on the record in this long interview that he thought, cause he had a connection at FX. Um, and he thought that FX was, that's where it was going to end up. FX at this time, like 2003, 2004, was kind of really starting to explode. They had the shield. They had a couple of, you know, they're about to have Nip Tuck. They were about to have Always Sunny. So can I FX- tell you that, can I tell you the shield was one of my favorite shows? It's so, it's so badass. I just, I love that show so much. Well, I th- and I think a lot of people talk about the Shield the same way a lot of people talk about the Wire. Mm-hmm. Is that it? it it's, you're right. It's it's like the original Wire. Yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to remember. And I th- was the Wire first or was the Shield first? The Shield was first. The Shield was first. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it the the Wire goes a lot deeper into kind of the community aspects than the Shield does. The Shield just kind of focuses on the police department. Mm-hmm. Um. That is definitely not supposed to be the L.A. Police Department. Wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge. It was, I, I remember it being very violent. Um, but I I mean, it was just, the, the storylines were great. The characters were great. So, I mean, it kind of, you kind of just dealt with the violence of it. But I love that show. Such a good show. It's another show I need to see. You need to see. I think you would like it. If you, if you like The Wire, you would like that one yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's where he thought it was going to be end up because he had connections with F and he had connections with Fox as well. He still had a lot of connections with Fox, but NBC ends up buying it. And he talks about how much, how different it was from anything that was on network television at the time. You know, you have to remember this is again, 2003, 2004 and NBC's comedies are Will and Grace friends you know those are pretty classic multi-camera kind of setup punchline setup punchline type of you know type of comedies mm-hmm. you know they had scrubs at this point scrubs was kind of starting to find its footing and that you know is as kind of a single camera shot and we can kind of i can go i can don't do a whole full deep dive into the Billy Lawrence cinematic universe as well, because it's phenomenal. Well, but, I just, I just know that uh, scrubs did not age well either. So, well, and a lot of comedy doesn't true. A lot of comedy doesn't, you know, and part of it is just the jokes that are made. Part of it is too, is that what people think is funny a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, they may not find funny. Now mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to something. And I said, I used to like this. <laughs> I used to find this funny. Like I just, it doesn't, it doesn't hit. So, and again, you can notice, does a lot of research. He goes to Scranton, does a lot of research as, as to what he wants to do. He talks about all the pressure of having this be as good as the British version because people are expecting it to be as good as the British version. They've seen the British version. The comparison that he makes is to when all of the family aired, all in the family was based off a British show, but he says there was no pressure for all in the family to be like its British counterpart because no one had ever seen that. And in fact, no one in America probably still ne- ever seen that version. But by this point, a lot of people had seen the British office, the office, the British version, and were expecting this to be the same, if not better. And I, that, I mean, that's what you. That's what you can expect, though, with the remake, too. You know, the the pressure and the comparisons to the show and is it good enough? And 
Uh, and I, I remember seeing interviews with him and the cast just saying that, you know, it took a long time for them to get all the pieces in place and, and to get the show off the ground. So, yeah, absolutely. And and you could see those first that first season, they're trying to find they're trying to find their way mm-hmm. and they are trying to and you see it a lot with with especially with Michael's character is you're tr- they're trying to. F- find they're trying to find where he can grow well you see that there's such a difference in his character between season one and season two i think some of the feedback was that they wanted michael to have a little more heart and and to make him more likable and like you see his look change a little bit from season one to season two so you know, yeah season one he has the, the full slick, the slick back oh the slick back yeah you know, jet black slick back hair he looks kind of like you know Almost like the Gordon Gecko look with the pinstripe yeah. suits, mm-hmm. and that very much softens by season. And I'm trying to remember: was season two was that where he had makes the deal with Tim Meadows at the Chili's? I believe so. Yeah, I think that is season two. Yeah. So, and that's really a great example of the growth. And then at the end, he just has this kind of turn. And he's very honest, and he turns out to be a good salesman. Yeah, I love, I love that. He, that's such a redemption of that episode. But as as you say that, I think that they were trying to obviously model Michael Scott off of Ricky Gervais's character, but quickly realizing that I think that American audiences they need they need a hero, they need somebody to root for. So I think that kind of, like you said, with the feedback, kind of played into why they softened Michael. Yeah, and they softened him to an extent. You know, but at the same time, you still see where he struggles. Oh, he's an ass. Yeah. You know, Don't get me a, wrong. But he's you know, a lovable ass. <laughs> well, a lovable, you know, and it's funny too. He did, uh, Greg and Mindy did an episode, uh, did a podcast for NPR, and it's actually after the Diversity Day episode, mm-hmm. which, again, you look back and you go, how did that ever air? on network television but i think you i i think it yeah it is offensive and it does not age well but i you, you can get the comedy of how ridiculous it is do you know what i mean and I, like i said i know that it's been pulled from i think the regular rotation of the shows and maybe rightfully so but but if you look at it from the more darker comedy aspect of it like it makes sense you know not not great but it makes sense and Oh, I, I I would agree with that, and I think what you, but again, it, it's what you're seeing is the growth, mm-hmm. and you know one of I think one of Michael's maybe his best moment in the entire show is when he's negotiating the buyout of the Michael Scott Paper Company. That is one of my favorite scenes because you just you just see something in him that I don't think you've really seen or since the Chili's episode, you know what I mean? It's that redemption piece of it. And you just, you know, he gives the whole speech of you have a shareholder meeting and and you have to explain why this is why the the why the branch is bleeding out. And I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait the stakeholders out. I just have to wait you out. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is all happening in the context of. You know, Dwight is then talking about how many capers he's cracked or how many cases he's cracked uh, to Idris Elba. But again, what you see is depth and what you see is emotion. And the office hit that so well. It was able to to do that so well and so wonderfully. And it made the show as it made the show great for as long as it was. Mm-hmm. And it's even more popular now than it was when it was on air. And I think that's why people tend to love it is that the positive messages that come from it really kind of are long lasting. Mm-hmm. There's also the comedy of, you know, the stapler and the jello and the whole butt liquor, uh, the butt liquor phone call. I don't know. I th- actually, I think my favorite is is the vending machine. Of all the pranks, the vending yeah. machine, yeah. The vending machine or Asian Jim. Asian Jim is pretty good. 
I like I like either the Christmas wrap desk. That's just a classic. Or when he um, has the wire going all the way outside up the telephone pole and he's like, well, I made it up there. <laughs> you know? So that's another good one. Yeah. Or or the desk in the bathroom. That is, yeah. I like that one, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that part is indoors. But like I said, the, the positivity that these characters, the humanity characters show, that's really what is kind of the hallmark of it. And I think a couple things that Greg Daniels did right with the show is he hired no names. I mean, Steve Carell had done a little bit of work prior to that, but it was even before the 40 year old version exploded. I mean, by that point, the really, the only thing he had done is, is he had the bit part on, on Bruce and Bruce almighty mm-hmm. where he was the, the newsman. And that's kind of how he got the, that's how he got this part was based off of that. But other than that, he was known for, for the daily show. Yeah. One of the daily show correspondents he had the, the, the set, the even Steven segment with Steve Colbert. Yeah. So I think, I think hiring people that weren't as well, everybody else was pretty much no name. Um, But there was no ego on set. There was no, there was no real competition. It sounded like everybody just from the start really believed in the show and wanted to do the best job that they could for it and, and for Greg. And that he, something else I think he did right. And they talk about this on Office Ladies podcast. Have to give them a shout out. Love them so much. Um, they talk about them uh, being able to play with the scenes and to improvise and to give their input on what they think would you know, be better or what they think their character would say. And a lot of the times Greg listened to that. Uh, and took that, you know, into consideration for their scenes. And I think that some directors or showrunners don't do that. And it's like, I know what's best and I have a vision for it. But this was, it really seemed like a collaborative effort. And I feel like that really came through. Also, too, he talks about how they cast it. And he talks about, you know, that they would improv basically scenes in the in the set. And they would, from that, they would kind of see how they would interplay with each other. You know, that he talks about how there was a improv scene where Jim would give Dwight a glass of water just without him asking. And Dwight would kind of just be suspicious as to why he did that. And he talks about how Rain Wilson and John Krasinski were kind of the the no one else had the interplay and had the chemistry that they did. And no one else basically could stand up to each other the way the two of them did. Can you imagine and, two other people in those roles? So, I mean, they are just perfect. Their, their interaction with each other is just amazing throughout the run of the show. The interaction and just the way, you know, like I go back to the Pavlovian dog prank with the, with the Altoid. Mm-hmm. And it just the, everything about the chemistry, you can see the chemistry there. Mm-hmm. You can see the chemistry. And that's something that I think Greg Daniels, I think, tries to work very hard to build. Once he has an idea of what the character wants to be, he kind of knows who he wants in those roles. And he trusts and he trusts the people that he hires. He trusts his writers. He trusts his casting directors to cast the right crew uh, to, you know, put the right cast together. And he trusts the actors to kind of know where the line is and to and know what they need to do. It also didn't hurt that two of the cast members were the two were two of the main writers mm-hmm. in in Mindy and BJ and you know they did such a great job writing their characters. Mm-hmm. And so, Paul Lieberstein, I mean, you know, he as Toby, he was a big uh uh, big contributing factor in the writer's room too. But yeah, I think that it does bring a different aspect to it. If you're both writing for your own character and characters interacting with each other, I just think it does bring something different to it. And and just to, to a quick point out that Mindy Kaling actually worked on the Conan O'Brien show prior to The Office. So I wonder if they, you know, had a conversation about her before they brought her over. Yeah. Well, and also too, you're going to see a lot of connections too. You know, it's where it's at Parks and um the office where he meets up with Michael Schur mm-hmm. and Michael Schur was writing for Saturday night live, but he was also 
baseball blogging under the name Ken Tremendous. Which you told me about recently, and I had no idea that he was Ken Tremendous. That's crazy. He was Ken Tremendous. And he also like he also plays Moe's, uh, Dwight's yeah. cousin? Yeah, he's the cousin. cousin right? Yeah, he, on the office. The, he's the cousin of the beef farm. He's I think he's the one that shoots the grave three times to make sure they're dead and they can't come back as zombies. And I remember he was he was on the Office Ladies podcast and talking about how like he hated playing that role and how Greg kind of tortured him and like even when he left to do Parks and Rec that would bring him back and you know put him in these ridiculous situations and and I think it became funny after a while but he did not love playing that character. Well, there's two things he could do really well: write comedy and bitch about Derek Jeter because <laughs> he's a big Red Sox fan. So gotcha. Um, so it, it's after the office is well established that they want to do a spinoff. So he and Michael Schur basically create Parks and Recreation. And it's kind of the same thing. He talks about how it's they kind of came up with the idea while Obama was campaigning in an office. So they want to do local government. And they already knew that they wanted Amy Poehler. You know, they wanted Amy Poehler in uh, I think they I think they had cast uh aziz and sorry first but then they knew they wanted amy poehler to be the boss and they knew that's what they wanted so and then again you build it from there and they build these complex characters you know they ron swanson was based off of a city planner that they met in burbank who said her husband was a libertarian who hated the government and worked for the government <laughs> and she's quoted in the la times going yes i'm aware of the irony so, and that's how they created the character of Ron, Swan of Ron Swanson, a libertarian who thinks government should not exist and, you know, builds builds chairs in his wood shop, which he actually does. Nick Offerman actually is a woodworker and is and a carpenter and builds furniture in his spare time when he's not touring with his wife, Megan Mullally, uh, who is also in the show as his ex-wife, Tammy, too. And... Again, you're talking about just incredibly cast, incredibly well-written. They know, and these are, again, deep characters. They talked about with Amy, who plays Leslie Nope. they talked about how she was kind of almost kind of a, of a klutz in season one. And they so they worked on making her deeper. The original idea was to have her first boyfriend from the show, uh, Mark Rabinowitz, be the love interest in Parks and Rec. They had written it that she had hooked up with him on, on a one-night stand. And so they didn't want that to be the lasting image of the character. So they kind of wrote them, you know, and, my, and Greg talks about how they kind of wrote themselves into a corner with that character. And so they had to come up with something else. Now, they ended up coming up with for a couple episodes with Louis C.K., not great. We're both making faces right now. We're both making really cringy faces. Louis C.K. as a cop, really not great. It wasn't until the end of season two that Rob Lowe and Adam Scott come on. And Adam Scott is Ben Wyatt, the uh, the former 13-year-old mayor of a town who then bankrupts it with an ice town. So that kind of happened organically. The the Andy Dwyer role, the Chris Pratt role, was just supposed to be a one-off. And he ended up sticking around for the entire series. Is that how Chris Pratt got his fame? Was from Parks and Rec? I believe so. I think he had done, before that, I think he had done Moneyball. I know okay. he was in Moneyball. Mm -hmm. He played Scott Hatterberg in Moneyball, the catcher who moves to first base and is terrified of throwing the ball. <laughs> I can get into a whole rant about Moneyball, too. I believe he had done that before he did Parks and Rec. But he again, it was just supposed to be a minor character, and he ended up writing himself onto the show. Rashida was kind of... Rashida being on the show was almost... is a, is a rarity for him, because he usually doesn't like to use the same cast. There are certain people, like, for example, Bill Lawrence loves, has a really set of regulars that he uses constantly. But, like, for example, with Bill Lawrence, when his first um, 
sitcom was Spin City that had Michael J. Fox and it had Alan Ruck before Succession. And then when he came to Scrubs, both Michael J. Fox and Alan Ruck had cameos in that. Scrubs is where he meets Zach Braff. Zach Braff does a cameo in Cougar Town, which is part of Scrubs. And then Zach Braff actually run did the music for all of Ted Lasso. He was part of Ted Lasso along with Bill's wife, Krista Miller, who was in Scrubs as well. So, and she, I think they both selected the music. So he has a set of regulars that he kind of used, he puts in different, he likes to bring from show to show. Mm-hmm. Greg's kind of different. Greg is really, he likes to use kind of completely fresh things in, in all of his shows. In fact, he even talks about how the windows and on the Parks and Rec set have the mesh inside the window instead of the vertical blinds so that it wouldn't seem like the office set. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of minute kind of detail. Like um, who would, yeah, who would think about that, you know? Who would, you You wouldn't really think about that, but he wanted it to be completely different. If he wants all his shows, even if they end up being, if they end up kind of evolving into kind of meshes of each other, and he talks about how, Parks and Rec is really a mesh of King of the, turns into a mesh of King of the Hill in the office. He wants them to be completely different entities that can grow on their own. And he doesn't want to have anything that would make it seem derivative. He doesn't want it to make it seem like he's just taking that and putting it in another setting. Right down to the fact that he doesn't really use a lot of the same people in uh, cast in, it, in all of his shows. You know, Rashida Jones was one that he used in Parks and Rec. The voice actor who was John Redcorn in King of the Hill is on Parks and Rec as, I think, a Native American chief because he is Native American. Also, Parks and Rec is kind of the first springboard for a lot of talented people. Nick Kroll was in Parks and Rec playing a, a bit character. John Mulaney was in Parks and Rec playing a bit character. Andy Samberg uh, was in Parks and Rec playing a bit character. Uh, playing, I think he was a... a he worked in the sanitation department and he had voice of modulation. So all he did was shout all the time. Now, and he ended up, you know, and then of course he ended up being cast in Brooklyn nine, nine by Mike Schur, but Jason Manzukis was in, um, parks and rec. A lot of, there's another great story about, uh, about how basically half of the parks and rec cast comes out of this little ESPN web series years and years ago. And that that had, among other people, Ben Schwartz in it, Nick Kroll, John Mulaney, Aubrey Plaza, all came out of this little web show. But again, it just speaks to what kind of worlds he wants to build and how successful he's been in building them. No, I agree with you. I think all of those are very, very different from each other. And and you're right, I think I heard him talking in an interview that he does kind of want to reinvent, you know, each himself each time and and kind of explore something different. Um, did he ever talk about the difference between writing for an animated series versus like a real person series? I don't know. He talked about that and the differences if one was easier or the other. He does talk a lot about how it's hard to get feedback Mm -hmm. because of the whole animation process. For example, with King of the Hill, I think it was, you know, they would have the drawings, but then the actual animation was outsourced to Korea. Mm, I didn't know that. Okay. So basically it was very hard to get kind of feedback on, on where they thought they were, how they thought they were doing, because it's not just writing the show. It's, you know, the animation on top of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're to live action show, you can just get feedback right away. You know, you kind of can tell right away what's working and what's not. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. And I think there's different, I think, I mean, you can write, for these animated series and um, and still have heart and 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 depth of character, but I think there there is something different when you're kind of directing or show running, you know, actors because they they can bring something different to the table and not necessarily stuff that you can control. Because I think a lot of a lot of the actors on the office really kind of ran with it and, and developed their own characters and and really kind of leaned into it too. So. Um, yeah, so I could see, I could see both ways being challenging in certain ways. Yeah. And all you have to do is just look on YouTube and see all of the time, all the times that Parks and Rec or The Office were improv and you can do that when you have an environment that engenders creativity and it is 
where the actors and everyone feels safe to be in that. And that's a real testament to him that you don't really hear anything bad about his sets. As we're taping this, Jimmy Fallon's getting absolutely roasted right now. I saw that. I saw the headlines of that. What's happening? Basically, as, as we're taping this, it's Friday, September 8th. And that story came out a couple days ago on, uh, I think it was Rolling Stone. It was either yesterday or the day before that basically said he ruled the Tonight Show like a tyrant. And, you know, it was an abusive, uh, really just depressing workplace culture to, to be in. And it kind of follows really the 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 stories that came out about like James Corden. Yeah. Or or Ellen, where you kind of have this, you know, fun, jokey persona on camera, but really you it's a it's a nightmare to work. And really all you really need to know, you can go look up the story. All really all you really need to know is that no one who was basically on put quoted on the record for the story really had anything good to say about their time there. Yikes. See, and, my, my dad is a huge fan of Jimmy Fallon, you know, loves watching him. And I, I always thought there was something a little off about him. And I mean, I think, didn't he have a problem with alcohol? Well, that something? was the whole, that was the whole thing. You know, that was always the, the rumor that he was drunk when he had the whole finger thing. You know, when, yeah. he had the, when he, you know, almost ripped his finger right off his, right off his hand mm -hmm. was that he was drunk when that happened. And yeah, then there was the whole Trump rustling of the hair thing. Oh yeah. He got a lot of backlash for that. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I never really cared for him, but it was just, it, it just seemed very clicky. And to be honest, and you don't really hear that a lot about Greg Daniels. Mm-hmm at all you know everyone that seems to work for him seems to love him yeah Absolutely. and that's really and that's really a testament to him and and what he's kind of done i agree yeah he's done a lot of great work and it's like do you know what he's working on now i i don't know if i'm misremembering this i think he might be working with some uh, on something with steve carell again i thought that's I what think, he said i believe he's doing the space Force show for apple plus okay for apple tv plus which mm -hmm. is the, the Steve Carell show. I believe that's what he's doing. Gotcha. And that's, well, I've, and I haven't seen that, but I've heard good things. How bad can it be really? <laughs> and I, and I guess, I, I guess I wish we had more of, of him or people like him in Hollywood. Um, you know, like I said, from all the interviews I've listened to with the, with the office cast, it's, you know, they really respected him and he really respected them. And, you know, I think that really that collaboration just makes for, the, you know, the best end result. When you aim to for realism and when you aim for emotional depth and complexity, because that's what human beings are, you end up with great stories. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of humor in everyday life. And the shows that he has had a hand in creating show running writing for that humanity shows th comes through. And I think across all those shows and all those characters, like we recognize those people as we, you know, we see a little bit of them in ourselves or somebody we know, we're like, Oh my God, I know somebody exactly like that, you know? So absolutely. Again, with everything, there's always realism. Like he talks about how Jim Halpert and Andy Bernard are real people mm -hmm. and they're real life friends of his from when he was a kid, I think. And, you know, he even talked about, he wrote, he actually did his own screen test when he was casting the office. And he said, I wanted to do it to so that. If Jennifer Aniston, Aniston saw me, she'd be impressed by me. Like, how can you not love that? Yeah. In conclusion, Greg Daniels is a land of contrast. Um, <laughs> no, what I wanted to say is, is we wanted, we were, we were, we wanted to do something a little lighter for you this week. We will get back to soul crushing reality next week. We will. Um, Although I don't we, think next, next week is not too bad. So next week I'm covering the witness protection program and done a lot of research and I found some really interesting things. So it's not going to be as dark, but it's, you know, we're, we're in for a ride for that one. It's a laugh riot. Every, <laughs> anytime you can talk about the witness protection program, it's a laugh riot. No, but we, we appreciate you, all you guys listening. 
Uh, we appreciate all the support, all the positive feedback. We love you. Um, and we're excited to continue to grow this with y'all. Yeah. So. so tune in for us next week. Um, like I said, I will be covering the witness protection program. Um, so don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, find us on Instagram and TikTok at the tell me about podcast and email us episode suggestions and comments at the tell me about podcast at gmail.com. Have a great week guys. Bye.